Hello, agents, and welcome back to the season finale, episode 112, McPherson. It's been so fun to see everybody's responses to the first half. I really enjoy that we had a few days in between so that we could hear from you. And I would just recommend that everybody go to our Twitter feed and check out what's been happening there because people are answering our questions, people are responding with images, including a great picture of the flower anecdote about Elagabalus. And we don't have time to share everything that we learned, but I would like to shout out to one particular tweet that answered that longtime question we've had about the antacid tablets, quote unquote. So this Twitter comment came from a user named at James Mender, and James said that according to a website called eruditegorilla.com, those antacid tablets that we kept calling them were calcium supplement pills. And he adds, and this is a quote, I just put in my copy of Implosion, and it's definitely a supplement with the last two letters, U-M. Although I don't recognize the brand, at least one American manufacturer does make fruit-flavored calcium supplement tablets in a roll. I think the Erudite Gorilla was right. I think they were left purposefully as a clue. Also, the umbrella and Waz scepter necklace. McPherson wanted Artie to find him so Artie could be caught red-handed selling artifacts. He didn't want Artie dead. He wanted Artie to be like him. So thank you so much, James, for finding that for us. We have retweeted that link, and we'll be sure to put it in the show notes. And uh, this website, Erudite Gorilla, has some great reviews of Warehouse 13 as well. So awesome resources all around. And now let's go back to the episode. Yes. Um, so Mrs. Frederick is in the stacks with Lena, and they're just talking. She says, when I told him the phoenix was gone, he was genuinely surprised and distraught. And then he told me about the Goblet of Severin. And Lena opens the goblet box at Mrs. Frederick's request to find a child's sippy cup in its place, which initially is pretty funny. But then I was like, that man should not be around small children. But Mrs. Frederick and Lena discuss something we did not know until this point which is that the digital readouts that display the artifacts and their side effects and all that says that they can also show who has accessed the artifacts. And Lena finds Claudia's access on there. Although I can even recall in the very first time I saw this and had no idea what was going to happen, I was like, it's not Claudia. I know in my soul it's not Claudia. Like, I remember that feeling, and I'm sure many, if not most, first-time viewers would be, like, really just compelled by this story and this framing. And um, I do also like the choice, because I agree with you. I think Pete and Micah would be more open one way or the other. I think Micah would be the first one to say, let's look at it objectively and not take a stance. I think... Pete would say, well, I don't want to believe it, but I, I'll follow your reasoning. But I think Artie would burn the world down before believing it. And I do like the choice that they just don't tell him. They're going to let him focus on this because he's dealing with his lost love and a betrayal by his best friend at one time. It's 
enough for him to deal with you know seriously he has enough um so meanwhile pete micah and artie arrive at the location that was indicated on the box i just call it a wooded area yeah it's outdoors ish ish um and there's some pretty cool filming as they kind of go through this space and they're like we have to watch each other's backs. This is too easy. This is probably a trap. And as they are talking about watching each other's backs, they circle up, you know, like warriors in a fantasy film, like looking on all possible directions. With their guns drawn. And and I had two fashion notes here. Oh, good. So my first note is Micah looks amazing. With that blazer and the glasses, amazing. <laughs> um, and then I wrote... Pete's jacket is kind of cool, but those are some dad sunglasses. Oh, he does, yeah. I I don't know if they were cool at the time, but they just reminded me of, like, the dads you'd see around the community swimming pool watching their kids. Like, it was just not his best look. I have a feeling that they were fashionable at the time. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm not an expert in men's sunglasses. (laughs) Um, so things are getting really tense, the music is coming in, and then a little kid on a bicycle, like, rides by, and he just is like, what? <laughs> and Artie says, good afternoon. <laughs> it's so funny, like, and I still, again, don't know, like, did McPherson give this kid 20 bucks to ride past that area, or did this kid happen, like, it's the middle of nowhere and there's no parents, like, it's pretty weird that he's out there. I mean, there's not a whole ton of space, though, in D.C. Like, if you've That's ever been true. there, it's just, you could, he was probably just riding somewhere. He, his dad might have worked in, like, that factory building behind him. You just don't know. There's a million reasons. I don't think he was paid because he was just so... Blase. Yeah, and he didn't, like, lead them to anything. Like, I don't think McPherson would be like, go here at exactly this time where my enemies might be. I mean, you already said he's dangerous to children. I don't put anything past him. I mean, yes. But I don't think he goes out of his way to hurt kids for no reason. I think he will harm anyone who gets in his way, whether or not they are a child, which is upsetting. But, yeah, I think the kid was just riding his bike, and he sees, like, these three adults, like, jump, and he's like, I am a child riding a bike. This is not alarming behavior. Yeah, um... Either way, his little bike trail leads them to notice, like, a sort of, I don't know, like, a rift, like, I just called it a spectral disturbance. Wow. That's way better. You're (laughs) you're so good. A spectral disturbance in the ground. Which, it's okay, my word usage is about to get a lot less sophisticated because I didn't know what else to say, but Artie puts on the glasses and uses them to see the world Van Goey? It looks very Van Gogh-y, yeah. He immediately recognizes that these are Timothy Leary's glasses, and when you put... He also knows that they aren't the originals. He somehow found a way to replicate artifacts. Um, Because he says, if these were originals, you wouldn't be able to take them off. So there is something out there that allows you to replicate artifacts. I think it's something that was probably taken from the warehouse. This is never, ever discussed. But we do know that at one point Artie replicated the Hanjo Masamune. 
so that he could swap it out. We know that this artifact was altered and swapped. And then we know much later in season five that there is a big plot point revolving around artifacts being duplicated and messed with. So there is something out there that we never see that is especially scary in terms of how you can replicate artifacts. So um, this is funny because they say, uh, Artie says, these are Timothy Leary's reading glasses. Pete immediately knows, yeah, the guy who gave us LSD. Um, And I thought about like bringing in an expert on Leary, but all we really need to know is exactly that line um, that this is the guy who gave us LSD, used it in all these various experiments. Um, And what I would like to point out about the use of the glasses is that although they affect everybody, you know, Micah puts them on and she's the one who actually sees something useful. Because of like, course she is. She knows where to look. And not only, so she looks down on the ground following the spectral disturbance. She notices that there's this sort of like structure in the ground. She also immediately is like, oh, that hole is the shape and size of this wooden box. Like that requires a special kind of spatial reasoning that I don't have. So she's like, puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. I know what this is. Um, puts it in, and the effect goes as it opens up. And then a really funny exchange happens where uh, they're like, oh, all right. Artie goes, ladies first. And he, uh, she says something like, age, age before, before beauty. beauty. And then Pete says, Artie's older than the both of us. Put together. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, also not true, but the point is that, like, they're fighting over who to go in, you know, who has to go in first. And Artie's like, children, I'm working with children. <laughs> uh, which again, like, when we get this dad feeling from Artie and w- with Claudia specifically, we get that because she is a teenage girl who needs a father, but he's kind of like, you know, the father to these squabbling siblings too, like, all the time. So it was perfect. Because he is fatherly in the amount of knowledge he has that they just yeah. don't know. Like, they're essentially children of this warehouse now. Yeah, and in terms of even, like, regardless of age or gender or anything, like, seniority. Like, he's been there, he's worked it, he's gone through it, and he's mentoring them through. And so then they go underground, and they're walking through, like, darkened hallways, and Artie looks around and says, these are Warehouse 13 crates. And Pete gets a really, really bad vibe and Micah notices, of course, and they start to, like, whisper argue, but they don't stay quiet enough, so Artie forces a confession from them, but it's not a useful confession. Pete just says, I have a really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach, and Artie has one of my favorite all-time <laughs> Artie lines, which is, all right, well, when you get a really specific feeling, just tell me, okay? <laughs> it is really funny. I just like with this, though, that Artie is absolutely willing to accept negative vibes about himself like objectively i don't know i thought i thought that was very necessary for a warehouse agent yeah Artie says he's going one direction alone and pete and mike micah just go no and he goes yes this is happening like we're not arguing about this and pete makes Artie keep his tesla in his hand he's like i can't control what you're about to do but i can make sure you're correct while doing it And then Pete and Micah hide out behind some shelves and they watch Artie 
come out and approach the bitters. Shout out to Micah's acting because she turns and looks to Pete and looks really worried, but her eyes are glistening with tears. And I just have to say, I personally identify a lot with Micah um, in a lot of ways, but this one is one of the biggest. I'm a very emotional person, but I'm not a big crier. For me, peak emotional is when my eyes get watery and then my brain sort of snaps and goes, okay, no time for this emotion time for logic and I, I try to address the problem and I feel like Micah is very much that way and I think that is a shade of emotion that's not really played a lot on TV. It's either I'm okay or I'm gonna cry it out and feel better and not everyone hits those ends of that spectrum and she hits a very real place at least to me in a very convincing way. I think that's awesome. Um I also love the way that Pete and Micah deal with what they're seeing because they start running through the possibilities like, okay, you know, possibility, he's being mind controlled, he's be blah, blah, blah. Like, um, and Micah seems like she has to accept the possibility that it is Artie because I believe it's her, you can tell me if I'm wrong, who says, no, they called him Mr. Nielsen, like they know... Pete says that. Pete says it, okay. So Pete says they called him Mr. Nielsen, and they realize that, like, some of these other possibilities might not be the explanation. And then? Oh my gosh, out, out of sudden surprise, the quote-unquote real Artie comes up behind them? Just as, just as Pete says, wait a minute. Maybe McPherson is Artie. And, like, I think <laughs> if it yes. had been more than the split second, like, I think it's just, like, that one moment of being, like, this is a twist. Like, before our brains just immediately go, wait, that doesn't make any sense is, like, a thing to say. But just as we get to the, hey, that doesn't make any sense, Artie appears and just goes, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, and then it's really fascinating because um, Artie goes, like, I'm, you know, I'm Artie. And they're like, how do you, how do we know? And in any other show, it would be like, you know, Captain Marvel, where it's like, there's a code, or I know this about you that no one knows. And he's just like, well, look at the security camera. I'm obviously being set up. Um, which is, I loved that. And I think it is also like levels of thought. Like, Artie just saw himself being impostered and like brought almost to ruin and he's he's not like calm about it but he's like level-headed he's like well I see what's being done here and obviously here's how we have to act now to step in because I, I think it's just what we were talking about his dad knowledge he's been around the warehouse so many times that I think this is an obvious thing for him to notice where they're like I, I just don't know I just don't know about all this so Artie says he's being set up just like McPherson tried to do an implosion. Well, he doesn't say implosion because he's not aware he's in a television show. <laughs> but <laughs> but, in, but with the Masamune, he remembers. Yeah. Um, and Pete wants to believe him, but isn't quite sure what to say. So Pete goes, well, then how did he do it? Get an Artie suit? And then... One of my favorite exchanges of the season takes place where Micah just goes, the thimble. And Artie, just with complete respect, you can see the respect on his face. He goes, you really did 
read the whole manual, didn't you? Which we'll see the manual much later. That is a quite impressive feat, is all I'm saying. But Micah. But Micah's replying. She's so proud and she smiles and nods really big and just goes, I did. She goes, I did. I really did. Yes. And it's, it's like like a, a child winning on, a, like, you know, best spelling bee award. Yes. Like, I don't know. It's like, it's cute. It's perfect. It's believable. We know she can read. I feel like his reaction and appreciation of it is no joke. Legit the reaction she's wanted from her dad for any achievement she's ever had. Oh, Jillian. <laughs> Oh, my little soul, and oh. I know. So then Artie explains how it works, and I believe here is where we're going to insert some clips, probably from our artifact expert, about the thimble, which is Harriet Tubman's thimble, to be more specific. Yes. So, Dr. Carsonia Wise-Whitehead, who also goes by Dr. K, works at Loyola University in Maryland. She is a K-12 Master Teacher of African American History and the award-winning author of Notes from a Color Girl, The Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Frances Davis. She also hosts her own daily talk show, Today with Kay. From 2013 to 2015, Dr. Whitehead participated in the White House's Black History Month panel, co-sponsored by President Obama. So we are absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Whitehead speaking about Harriet Tubman today. Okay, so Harriet Tubman, or, or Minty, as I like to call her, which was her father's nickname for her, uh, I would consider her to be one of the most important people, not in African-American history, because I don't like to separate it out that way, because I believe that African-American history is American history, and, and Harriet Tubman is someone who is a significant part of American history, someone who was born enslaved, uh, but refused to let that stop her. If she was alive today, she would be considered to be disabled uh, because she did have a disease where she fell asleep as a result of being hit with an iron bar across her head when she was younger. Uh, she could neither read nor write, so she didn't write or record her own story. It's been told by others. It's been passed along, which I think is important. But the fact that she not only sold herself, to use Douglas's words, but she went back several times to help family members, um, friends, and others make their way across the, the line to get to freedom. Okay? Kind of as a conductor, moving people along the pathway to freedom, but freedom was something that you had to claim for yourself. And after that, she continued to be involved. I'm thinking about her work uh, with the Union soldiers during the American Civil War. Uh, we, we often talk about the Combahee River Collective and her work in that one night going through and informing the members saying maybe 750 enslaved people that they could claim freedom for themselves. Her name has traveled far and wide and her memory holds clear. So the Harry Tubman Convention is coming up next Saturday to celebrate her in Maryland. And I was just excited, uh, as a keynote speaker, to find that her great-great-grandniece, uh, if I'm saying that correctly, is on the program. I, I just like knowing that Harriet Tubman's family line has continued, even though this is not her child, but it's the child of a family member, and that line is important. And Artie explains that 
the thimble or whoever wears it allows you to turn into essentially anybody else. It makes you a shapeshifter. And it got its powers as she was stitching rags together to form outfits and stuff for her fellow slaves escaping. Escaping to freedom through the Underground Railroad. Um, And, well, one thing I think is interesting is that the language of the thimble itself is similar to the Masamune. I don't think that's a coincidence that... McPherson is specifically interested in artifacts that allow you to um, be someone else, be invisible, move through space unnoticed, etc. And uh, so this language of refraction and like reflection is similar. And then the other thing that I asked our expert about that's really historically interesting is that Harriet Tubman is an incredible woman for so many reasons, but one of them is her reputation as a, you know, a leader of the Underground Railroad that she, in the kind of quotes of that language, never lost a passenger. So everybody who she went back to rescue, she rescued. And so I asked our expert about that reputation and the the techniques she might have used to be so good at saving people. And here's what she had to say. Well, yes, there are a couple of different things that she would use. Um, The ways in which she would get the message across that she was coming to town or that she was looking, coming to a certain area or looking to take people on the pathway to freedom. I mean, all kinds of stories have been told about how they would sing songs and she would pass the song along and others, other enslaved people would pass the song through the plantation to let people know that Harriet Tubman was coming through if they were ready to, to go to freedom. They would also, you know, plant the stories and the methods in quilts. I mean, that's also a, a, a big way that communication was passed. Uh, I've heard stories that sometimes they would cornrow the young girl's hair. They would put the pathways and the messages in the cornrows, which I think is extremely creative when you think about the ways in which black people negotiated for and fought for and were in pursuit of not just their own freedom but helping other people to to get on the pathway toward freedom. Harriet Tubman is known, of course, for carrying a pistol. So when you say she's never lost a passenger, uh, she did what she had to do to ensure the safety of everyone. I mean, there are stories that she would say, go forward or be shy. I know that there were types of drugs they would use on the babies if there was a baby along the way. They would carry the baby, but they couldn't have the baby crying out. Uh, Whether or not they were hiding themselves in the lake or hiding themselves in the bottom of a carriage. I mean, she was quite adept at finding a way to persuade people to move past their fear and to tap into that deep sense of resilience and courage that lies at the bottom of all of that and to keep moving forward. I think that is one of her greatest strengths. That's truly amazing. The artifacts to which Artie has affinities versus the artifacts to which McPherson has affinity. Artie is very, very understanding of and thoughtful about artifacts dealing with essentially elemental energies stuff that deals with affect theory and electromagnetism he sees those as the rawest of the raw powerful artifacts 
whereas McPherson is repeatedly drawn to artifacts dealing with the concept of power as well as artifacts that deal with light, which I think speaks to the differences of the characters really well. Artie is very grounded in the way humans spread emotion to each other and the basic forces of electricity and energy and how those interconnect all people, whereas McPherson is a lot more obsessed with artifacts that either give or take power from others or allow him to control others but also specifically in relation to the bending of light like with the Hanjo Masamune or with the thimble it speaks to his difficulty separating light from dark in a symbolic sense oh yes that's really brilliant yeah and I, I mean just even the sort of chaos that we got from this uh, Waz scepter and the chaos that his artifacts he's using can cause. Whereas, like you said, um, Artie's artifacts are about unity and like, you know, I'm a neo-pagan. These things he is in, he is invested in. They're about connection and with other people. Yeah. It's, oh, so, you're so good, Jillian. <laughs> and this is why it's important to know what motifs are. Because oh, none of these... why there's a difference, you convinced me. <laughs> oh, no. That's the real arc of season one of Podcast 13. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I was just saying, like, I think that's interesting because none of McPherson's artifacts involve connections to other people except one. And that's the phoenix. Boy, oh boy, I have things to say, but they're spoilers. I know. Um, so yeah, that is all I had to say about that moment. So, at the Warehouse 13 office, Lena and Mrs. Frederick confront Claudia. They're trying their best. Uh, it's not just because Claudia is a teenager, which I feel like they emphasized on purpose earlier, about why she would find this so emotionally difficult and why it would be hard to understand. Um, and so she's like, no, obviously I would never turn on you guys. Um, and they say, well, not not on purpose. Um, obviously something could have happened. And Claudia's just really upset. She's so upset. She said, this place is my home. And Mrs. Frederick and Claudia believed that she didn't know she was being used and then she steps towards lena not threateningly just with like desperation yeah a desperate intensity and says pump me full of truth serum read me read my colors tell me my fortune she's so distraught and it actually the way she acted the way her voice broke reminded me <laughs> time to drink friends um of the season one finale of Buffy. Oh, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, <laughs> she's like she's like throwing the books. And yeah, like, I think tell me. I think it's because of the tell me my fortune line. I think yeah. Buffy actually says that, and it's so heartbreaking because she desperately wants answers and she just can't get them. And Lena says, "I can and I have, and something is wrong." She doesn't say specifically, like, You're, you've done something terrible, just something's not right. And Claudia goes, 
I'm like the Manchurian candidate or something. I've got to get out of here. And listeners, if you want to watch the Manchurian candidate, it is good. The ending is a twist that even if you think you see it coming, you don't see it coming. Um, so watch with caution. And and watch the original, please. Don't watch the... Re- just watch the one with Angela Lansbury. Um, oh, um, sorry. Claudia, in a later episode, makes an Angela Lansbury reference, so that's that. I mean, I'd believe it. The original Manchurian Candidate, at least how I remember watching it, is black and white. And, you know, if you grow up in foster homes or if you're in and out of... Um, mental institutions and facilities, I would believe that they would not quite update their back catalog regularly. So I, I have, I believe that she'd watch a lot of those older movies. Um, and she storms out, and Mrs. Frederick says to let her go, because Lena is worried that Claudia is so upset she's never seen her that upset. But it's best that she's not in the warehouse right now. And Mrs. Frederick says something alarming about McPherson. She says, yeah, his ability to make you feel that way is what made him such a good agent. He'd get inside your head and make you think you had the upper hand, and then he'd strike. Oh, gosh. And this is a hard thing, too, because uh, Lena, going back to why I wanted to point out her relationship with Claudia, says, like, I've never seen her this upset before. Like, Lena really wants to help Claudia or talk to her but at this point um, there's nothing they can do because they don't know if Claudia is somehow being used by McPherson. It's just such a difficult situation and then from there we go back to DC we're back in that underground secret place and Artie is trying to sneak up on McPherson when we see McPherson as McPherson. Um, And McPherson says, nice try, and holds up something that looks vaguely familiar but is not an implosion grenade and says, remember these? And then it just sort of cuts out. But wait, you ask, how is fake Artie still out there trying to sell stuff? We should have realized in this moment i did not until you said it jillian (laughs) oh boy (laughs) yeah so um i didn't write down again the dialogue because i was eating dinner at this point but pete and micah come up on who they believe to be mcpherson and they have their guns drawn they say he's under arrest and you know basically they're ready to shoot and kill him and that's when mcpherson comes out from around the corner and is like, oh, well, it'd be a shame to lose him. He's such a good bodyguard. And the bodyguard takes off the thimble. He's the bald man from earlier and reveals that it's not McPherson in an arty suit. It's baldy number two in an arty suit. Stupid um, baldy number two. So to make things even worse, we see McPherson has a chain and he kind of gestures and already comes around the corner like, chained up in this horrible, gruesome way. He's got the special thing in his mouth, and he's got the chain on his neck, and then he says, and uh, he's like, you know, remember that guy who made those special bombs for me? 
well, he made this basically like an eggshell bomb. Um, the slightest amount of pressure will, you know, if, if either McPherson pulls on the rope and makes Artie bite down or move too, too fast, he'll break the shell and the bomb will go off. And it will release a, quote, small but dazzling nuclear reaction. Oh, gosh. And he he lists a specific chemical or, or Promethium, is... but I don't know if that's real or not. I didn't look it up. I assumed it was fake because Prometheus is a Greek uh, yeah. Roman character. But science stuff is named after that kind of stuff all the time, so who knows? So I think the point in my reading of that line was that it was also, like, poison and an explosion Mm -hmm. so even if you survived the blast you would be like Artie would also be killed and when he says Prometheum Artie gives him the scaredest eyes I know oh my gosh poor Artie like Artie is vulnerable and this is really bad and Pete just says you were a warehouse agent what the hell happened to you and McPherson says 15 years of exile and goes on to claim that he intends to frame Artie for everything. Thanks for that villain monologuing. But he did, yeah. he did a villain monologuing in a way that really didn't feel like monologuing, you know? He, he did everything with purpose. And he says he knows Pete feels the same way that he does, that artifacts belong in the world and not the warehouse. And that Pete can just walk out with him right now and follow what you know to be true in your soul. Which is, I think, what saves it from being just the standard villain monologue. Because he was saying it in order to provoke another person to action. Yes, and I would like to say, too, that we just got that description from Mrs. Frederick about how... um, how McPherson splits people up and turns them against each other. And I actually think, and this is just my read of Pete, that he doesn't feel that way. And what McPherson is really trying to do is sow seeds of doubt in, like, Micah that Pete might not be a loyal partner, that he might, you know, like, the things that Micah fears the most are what McPherson is trying to get people to believe about Pete. And Pete just has the actual best response. And he's like, you're out of your gourd, McNutty Pants. Which was amazing. I actually had a similar reading, but from the opposite perspective. He clearly did his research on these agents. So I think that he was playing both sides of the coin at the same time. So I think he was doing what you were saying Micah but I also think he knew enough about Pete that maybe he could convince him or put doubt into Pete's mind because look Pete is a guy who really likes comic books and those sort of vintagey sci-fi fantasy worlds and yeah someone like Pete in the warehouse was probably like oh man if I had that when I was in high school I could have you know, taking the right person to prom or, you know, whatever it was. Such a demisexual read on that. I know. Taking the right person to prom. Yeah. Okay, keep going. But you but you know what I mean. Like, there, yes. there are all these things, like, the, or, you know, like, I could have been the strongest person or save. Or he, he could have been heroic. Like, he wants yeah. to help others. That's why he joined all of the various government, you know, agencies he did. He's he's trying to help people and save lives. Yeah, and I'm sure 
on occasion he's been like oh man it kind of sucks we have to lock it away in here because i could have done so much um but i don't think it rises to the level that mcpherson hoped it would of well if you join me then that dream can become a reality i think Pete's just like, no, I have perspective and understand my place in the larger world. (laughs) Yeah. I'm emotionally stable and very healthy. Like, that's Pete, you know? Yeah. And he says, well, basically, you can chase me or you can save Arthur. I'd say he's got about 30 seconds. And then he starts to run out. But Pete is so smart and so prepared. And he takes... Uh, the part of the goblet that Artie told him to pocket and throws it on the ground, um, making sure that Micah sees it first so that she can cover her ears. Um, And it emits this piercing sound that stops McPherson in his tracks. And Artie very strategically spits out the little (laughs) bomb thing and... Micah catches it very gently, but oh man, there's a lot of just trust and choreography that happened in that moment. And it's really incredible because um, the trust that Micah is fast and athletic and coordinated is awesome to see. Um, I mean, they don't have a lot of options, but they really use their mind melding to coordinate this plan and... uh, I also think, too, that Micah has a, a, like, really proud, like, face on when she catches it and it's okay. Like, not that we or she doubted her, but, you But, know. you know, it's a a big deal. <laughs> it could have exploded anyway just because of how fragile it is. So it's awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just the way she catches it. Like, she didn't, like, slap upwards or, you know, do anything. She just gently laid her hands out so that the least impact possible happened. It was just all very smart and purposeful and clear. And it made it all feel very real. Um, Yes. So now we cut to commercial, and then we're back for Act 5. And in Act 5, they have captured McPherson because the Goblet of Severin, our new favorite Roman Emperor, (laughs) and they have him in the back of the car and they're driving him to the warehouse. And this is amazing because I think as a writer, I usually fast forward past this part and we would just go to the warehouse with him. But it's a good place to have this scene because obviously Pete and Micah have the same question that we are having, which is like, well, we have him. What do we do with him? Because he already broke out of jail. And, and they're not murderers. Yeah, exactly. He's so powerful that, that they're trying to figure out what to do. And this is where Artie introduces to us the idea of bronzing. And Pete says, well, it actually happens because Pete says, okay, I'll promise I'll read the manual this weekend, but what's the bronze sector? And Micah's like, actually, I don't know. It's not in the manual. But I would just like to state for the record, we know for a fact that Pete does not read the manual that weekend, or any weekend. <laughs> Pete in the manual is, like, the lowest of low-key subplots in this show, but it's a big <laughs> subplot over time. So, uh, the reason that it's not in the manual, according to Artie, is because it's so dangerous if people knew that some of the worst figures in history 
we're all in one place. Like, I mean, think about this from your own perspective. That's absolutely horrifying. And you would never want those people to get out and get loose on the world. And so, you know, we get, we get that important information as they approach the warehouse um, and then come in to bring McPherson into custody. Yes, and Artie says some amazing things, which feeds into a theory I've had for a while. So Artie says, even a twisted mind can be an artifact, which is why they're kept in the warehouse. The theory I've had for a while is this is why they don't just outright destroy artifacts. If you go back to 102 Resonance and you find that Marsden's happiness went into the artifact and then you take in things like Miss Frederick said in 104 Claudia that all artifacts are extensions of people these are somewhat sentient objects it's not their right to destroy them they are somewhat alive just because we don't necessarily fully understand the ways in which they possess consciousness doesn't mean that they aren't worthy of respect. So in some ways, putting them in the warehouse is the kindest thing you can do because out in the world, they've gotten to such a place that they're reactive and they're unhappy and they're hurting people to a degree that the warehouse agents need to go collect them. And instead, we take them into this place where we have someone, <laughs> Lena, who I love, yeah. uh, whose entire job it is to make sure that they no longer feel that distress and that they can be as at peace as that kind of object can be. It's sort of like a healing mental institution for the objects, which I think is really interesting. That's a really, wow. I mean, I was just following and what you're saying about people being artifacts because Marsden is a great example and then future episodes give us similar uh, similar episodes to that one but the healing or the mental health bit is a really thoughtful part because we have discussed in this podcast how many of the historical figures that that are related to artifacts had a mental illness um and on the one hand, I think it's important to recognize that mental illness is much more common than than people have historically been willing to admit or talk about. But on the other hand, I think also, like we're talking about, like the the balance, the harmony, um, that's that's the road to wellness for people with a mental illness is having like we, me and Jill say, and a lot of people who struggle with these things say like, you know, you don't always have zero mental illness. You just have more and more good days and less and less bad days. Yeah. And that's like how they're they're making the, the artifacts still misbehave sometimes, but they misbehave less or they're oh gosh, I'm just I'm just agreeing with everything. You're so you're so on fire today. Thank you. When they said a mind can be an artifact, then it stands to reason that portions of minds can be artifacts, which is what the artifacts are oh gosh i want to quote milton but i only have half of the quote it's when satan says the mind is its own prison and can make hell out of heaven and a heaven out of hell like, yeah that's the mcpherson perspective um so with that comment or well with that conversation 
They get to the warehouse. Mrs. Frederick is waiting outside in the flesh. And as they come, first of all, McPherson is, uh, like, bound up in this scary way. Like, his hands are wrapped in, like... (laughs) I said it was an ace bandage, but, (laughs) I mean, obviously a restraining system that I'm sure is either artifacty or just super high-clearance law enforcement. But they bring him up. And McPherson is like, how am I supposed to go in? I've got that painite, and we're about to find out. But first he approaches Mrs. Frederick, and he says, you haven't aged. You must tell me your secret. Okay, first of all, she is like, you have. Like, she is not taking any compliments, even sarcastically, from him. And she's like, Maybe I'll tell you my secret on a warm summer day over tea. And it is like the most passive-aggressive, vindictive remark that she's telling him, like, yeah, I'll be I'll be here running my warehouse and drinking tea while you are bronzed, sir. Yeah. Great, Mrs. Frederick. And then she lifts up her necklace, which has some white crystals on a like a big uh, long pendant. And she says, you know, this is what will counteract the painite and allow him to enter the warehouse. Um, and it kind of surprises Artie. And McPherson suggests that, like, oh, I knew there would be something. She puts them over his neck. And they do this, like, crazy Iron Man thing. They, like, activate his heart and light goes. Like, something happens. He and flashes then, like, kind of orange, doesn't he? He does. Well, definitely the color is orange and he, like... He starts, he's, like, startled, and, like, this pulse goes through him. And then this clearly shows us that he is now... I mean, because they said, already said, it's permanently in his veins. Like, this is the only thing that could counteract that. And she's been wearing it on her neck the whole time. Oh, I love Mrs. Frederick, because I think that's some, some suggestion McPherson makes here, is like, oh, I should have known you would have it with you, like... He had been trying to break into the warehouse himself. Mrs. Frederick was protecting her, the stones, by wearing them. And, you know, they look good on her, whatever. And then she sort of smirks at him and goes on her merry way into her limo, where her guard is waiting for her. And we have information, again, thanks to the wonderful Benjamin Robb, about the guard. He's still in credits, officially doesn't have a name other than the guard or Mrs. Frederick's guard. But apparently, the writers referred to Mrs. Frederick's bodyguard as no ma'am whenever they wanted to talk about him because it was his one line in the pilot. I love that. It's awesome. It made me so happy to read that. So no ma'am is waiting for Mrs. Frederick at the limo. (laughs) (laughs) and we love him um she is like mission accomplished i'm leaving and this is where the uh pete micah already lead mcpherson into the bronze sector and pete asks so like you know are these people hitler mussolini like he's assuming that the people who we know to be the most despicable historical villains are there. He also mentions Michael Vick. Um, so oh my god, I forgot that! I, I thank you for being a duck lover. 
Yes, thank you, Pete. Of course Pete is a dog lover. Oh, gosh. And that was actually, I recall when I was in college, it was a... Yeah. Everyone was talking about it. Um, yes. If you don't know who Michael Vick is, he abused dogs. That's all you need to yeah, know. Yeah, don't look it up. It's upsetting. Yeah, he's a terrible, horrible person who maybe he is in the bronze sector. Um, yeah. Um, and we learned some information from... Artie, with intermittent corrections from McPherson, that the first bronzing was practiced in 1250 BC. Oh boy. Which, whoo, wow, yeah, they've been around a while, but apparently it didn't work very well, and it was, I guess, kind of painful, and the statues would fall apart, so Artie says, we've improved it here, by flash freezing cryogenically, then encasing in bronze. And he says, it's painless. And McPherson basically says, yeah, how would you know? Have you been bronzed a lot? And (laughs) Artie responds, it's as painless as a sword in the chest, clearly referring back to the end of implosion. And McPherson just says, touche. And it's kind of evil and funny but also at the same time really sad because we get a glimpse at the quick banter that they had and the way that they challenged each other and made the warehouse life a little less lonely. It was certainly a boys club and a toxic situation, but this is the last conversation they're going to ever have like that, you know? Yeah, and this is the difficulty is that Artie and McPherson were friends. Like, we know that, and we see it as as Artie deals with his emotions while leading McPherson to, to the bronzer. He's like, <laughs> the bronzer. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you know, he's, he's trying to cope with that. Um, but eventually he's going to have just the best line. He puts McPherson in the, like, chamber... Lena comes in, and this is disgusting. McPherson is like, oh, have you brought me a farewell gift? Like, what is he this He says she's a beautiful creature. creature. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. Gosh. It was disgusting. It was so gross. And ugh, whatever. It's actually worse when we get the twist of the ending, which is in the episode, so it's not a spoiler, that he had in some way employed Lena. He doesn't view her as a person. He calls her a creature, and it's just... And it's especially atrocious in this episode that deals with Harriet Tubman's thimble. So this is an insight that was totally Jillian's, but we talked about it before the show, and that's why I got to think about it more and discuss it with our expert, because Lena is a black woman in contemporary America being used by a British white man who doesn't think of her or treat her as a human person and uses her to get his busy work done. I mean, this is extremely upsetting and I'm not saying it's a fault of the show. I'm saying that he is a villain and the show has characterized him as such. So, We are going to talk actually with Dr. Whitehead at the end of this episode about this specific season finale and the racial and cultural implications of the dynamic between Lena and McPherson, but 
I'd actually like to start us with a little palate cleanser. First, we asked Dr. Whitehead about the role, not just of women like uh, Harriet Tubman, whose name we know and remember, but black women every day throughout history going through the trials and struggles of being African-American, being black women, and doing everything in their power to fight against injustice and create a better world. I think that there are all types of ways to fight for and negotiate for freedom during that time. It wasn't just uh, about leaving a plantation and, and taking that agency and claiming it as your own, but, but there are ways that, that black women were involved in work stoppages on plantations, slowing the work down as a form of resistance, uh, the ways in which you know, black enslaved women would grow their own vegetables and fruit and making sure that they were providing for their family as well as participating actively in the bartering process. Um, black women who were born free used their power and position to speak about what was happening, whether they were traveling and speaking, like say, um, you know, Marie Redmond uh, traveled and she spoke, or they raised money to send down uh, to enslaved people. So black women were actively involved in fighting for freedom on all fronts, whether it was in the church or through the establishments of their clubs or working as an abolitionist or being an abolitionist speaker or being on plantations and making sure that there was just an amount of agency to be claimed that though you were legally and physically enslaved, your spirit, your soul, it was still intact. And I think black women were the ones who were reminding their children of what that meant and their, their countless stories. Uh, so I always want to, to pay homage to black women who chose to survive, because I think that's important, that there was a choice that enslaved black women made every day to survive, particularly if you're someone who was born in during the middle of American enslavement, right? So kind of chart the beginning of around 1657 or so when it began to get legalized throughout the colonies and we kind of point the end in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Well, if you were born in the 1700s, you were born in the early 1800s, you're someone where your, your parents had never seen what freedom looked like, right? So this is really incredible. And there's one more 30-second clip from this particular discussion that, as a historian, I absolutely urge you to listen to and think is just beyond powerful. I'm putting a content warning in the middle of the episode, though, because this particular clip deals with self-harm slash suicide as well as the loss of children. So, Fast forward 30 seconds from the end of me talking, if that will adversely affect you. But as I said before, we need to know history, and it is absolutely unacceptable to sugarcoat the atrocities that Americans have inflicted upon other people, including fellow Americans and indigenous people, people of color, for hundreds of years. So I think that we have to pay homage to women in that way, but also women at state chose to survive, and then we pay homage to women that chose not to survive. That it was incredibly brave, I think, 
to to take your own life, uh, and in some cases, take the life of your child. Their story: a black woman who'd rather see their child die than have their child enslaved. I think it was an incredible time, and in, no matter what choice a black woman who was enslaved made at that time, we have to respect their choices and just pay homage to, to whatever they did to move us farther along the path. So back to the episode, McPherson just insulted Lena. Lena asks for help unloading the artifacts that they've recovered, basically, from what McPherson stole. And Micah's like, yeah, I don't want to see this anyway. Pete says, no, I want to see this. When am I ever going to see this again? And as he's walking away, Artie goes, never. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, obviously, this is not something we do all the time. This would be terrible. But... Then Artie has such an intense exchange and it takes such strong writing and a strong sense of yourself as a writer to know in a moment like this when less is more. And Jack Kenny definitely does. Artie leans towards McPherson with just like a world of emotion in his face that you can just sort of see disappear. Like there's no point and he just says... I thought I'd have a lot more to say to you. It's it's perfect that he gets the last, like, that's the ultimate, well, he has one more line, but it's the ultimate victory that Artie is like, you, you don't have as much power over my emotions as you think. Like, I don't have anything left to say. Whatever. Like, I, oh, good job, Jack. We love it. So good. And... Artie goes to start the bronzing process, and McPherson shouts out, we can still be partners. And, ugh. I got a shiver when you said that. Yeah, it's so bad. it's so bad. And Artie says, you're pleading for your life? That's out of character. Like, he, he's genuinely a little alarmed, and I think the part of him that still remembers McPherson as a friend is like, oh, wow, he must be so terrified if he's pleading for his life. Um, And then McPherson goes, I'm not pleading for my life. I'm pleading for yours. And in the moment, it seems just sort of like McPherson's lashing out when he knows he's lost everything. Mm -hmm. You don't really think much of it. And Artie just literally sighs, looks away sadly, and bronzes him. He is a bronzed person. Yeah. Well, and as this effect happens, it's very good... We got the intel that they cryogenically sort of freeze someone. And so you see this white mist come over McPherson's face and like a little bit of almost like frostiness comes over his face. Like he's getting flash frozen and then he's going to be turned to bronze. And that was that was really compelling to me as a visual. And also like I know it doesn't hurt or they say it doesn't hurt, but it's still really terrifying that you're going to stand there and, like, be not killed, but permanently immobilized. So, yeah, great job, great job to the effects people. And then we get a rapid series of shots from a lot of different places at once. We see Claudia leaving the B&B, looking really upset, and no one's following her, and she's all alone, which is heartbreaking. We see... 
Micah helping Lena out with some stuff, and she goes, I should check on Artie. And Lena goes, I'm sure he's fine. Actually, I'll go check. Artie is looking at McPherson, all bronzed up, and just goes, oh, what a waste. Uh, in the stacks, Pete is just singing to himself, being a happy dude, unloading artifacts, and then stops dead. Yeah? Just has his really bad vibe face. And then another quick cut shows no ma'am driving the limo with Mrs. Frederick inside. And she gets, I wrote, a vibe or something. I I don't think it's a vibe. I think we're meant to read it as a vibe. But as we learn more about Mrs. Frederick and her role in the warehouse, I think it's something more specific than a vibe. And she just says, turn around to no ma'am. And just then we cut to the bronzer where McPherson still is. And someone is unbronzing him. We pull back to reveal it's Claudia who is unbronzing him. No! I know! And then he says to her, look at the camera and wave to Artie or something like that. And she does, and it's really upsetting. She's not smiling, like, just looking up at the camera, doing exactly as she's told, and just sort of behaving exactly like a puppet, which is alarming. And that's the end of the act. And then, when we return, we see Claudia come around the corner to the office, and she kind of gestures for McPherson, he can come in, um, and then she stands, like, with her back against the office and puts her hand up, and this is when McPherson removes the thimble, and Claudia morphs into Lena, which, like, first-time viewer is like, Oh no, this is even, like, it's not worse, it's just more confusing. It's so upsetting, it hurt my heart. Oh, it's, well, yes, we love, I mean, we love them both, so this isn't helping anything. We're like, oh, but no, It's just, like, Lena is so deeply embedded, and she's so intimately connected with all of the artifacts that she's ever come into contact with, and it's more, like, Claudia... As the new member who's had all this access and time in the warehouse, that's scary enough. But with someone with as little oversight as Lena, that's horrifying. Like, what other things have they missed? And so as McPherson, you know, kind of moves to go into the office, he says, Tempest Fugit, or Fugit is probably what he says, that's Latin for time flies. So the suggestion, like, time flies when you're having fun. Like, what a great day I've had ruining the lives of all these wonderful people. Like, ugh, awful. So this is the scene that I discussed with Dr. Whitehead. And with the caveat that she has not seen the show, I gave a description of who McPherson is, who Lena is, and what's going on. And asked her for her reading, not only of what's happening here, but what implications this has for the dynamics that black women have faced through history and continue to face today. This, to me, is such an example of of how history has, in so many ways, either tried to silence 
uh, try to control, try to uh, manipulate, um, try to twist and dominate black women and who we are and the legacies of who we are. So in this particular finale, you have uh, a British male white, you have black woman, and you have this artifact that comes uniquely from a black woman's experience. She's created, she's used it, it's been stolen, now it's being used for various practices. I think that part of that parallel is what we're seeing now when we see things like the hashtag Cite Black Women movement, where so often the work and the contributions of black women get swallowed up either by white men or by black men or by white women that it is a active, ongoing movement to center the voices, the experiences, the artifacts, and the stories of black women. So though this is just, you know, it's a sci-fi story, a telling of a story, the parallel to where we are now and the work that black women are committed to doing to make sure that our labor is not stolen from us and, and retooled, that our work is not stolen from us and retooled, that our contributions to society are not stolen from us and reshaped, that there is an ongoing push, whether it's happening in Chicago, where you see black women who are now actively involved in shaping the political narrative there, whether it's happening in Baltimore, where black women are actively involved in shaping you know, the, the, the role of activism here, whether it's happening in Hollywood, where you see black women who are now directing and writing and reaching those next levels in terms of making sure our stories have a, a level of humanity that we've seen missing. This particular scene that you're talking about speaks volumes to the work that we're doing now. That is why we fight so hard to make sure that the work and the contributions and the narratives of black women are not forgotten, are not overlooked. This is why Kimberly Crenshaw created the hashtag Say Her Name movement so that we can remember to say the names, to speak the names, to remember the work and the contributions, the legacies and the history of black women. And he tells Lena, to go activate the codes that he infected the warehouse computers with when Artie accessed his site, which I love. I hate McPherson, but I love that he knew Artie would do that because he's so intimately familiar with. Yes, it's the it's both the long con and the um, what I say the Yoko factor. That's an episode of Buffy where, you know, they're splitting up the characters on the team and making them hate each other, like Yoko, the Beatles, etc. Just like Mrs. Frederick said he would. It's the worst. It's so terrible because it's like, oh, you do think you have the upper hand, and then he strikes. That's exactly what happened. And they thought, they really thought they got around it this time. They thought they had him, yeah. Ugh. And so, um, McPherson gets into the computers, it begins beeping, Already gets the notification and immediately knows, like, he's got to rush to the office. Things are not okay. And he has his Tesla, points it at McPherson. McPherson's like, go ahead. He shoots it, and McPherson has a resistance. He's not affected. I actually don't know why that is. Did He, he say said it? there's a way around almost anything. Ugh. Which means that he's definitely had something that probably rebuffs um, electricity. 
Sure. I mean, there, there could be an artifact for that. McPherson has it. And then we get this shot of, like, you know, from the balcony, you can see out over the warehouse, and these horrifying walls just start shooting up one after the other to block the warehouse in. Um, and it's like, takeover. McPherson has control. He's shutting it down. Um, and then he also locks himself and Artie into that room together. And so with the Tesla having failed, Artie goes after him and they begin to fight. So scary. It's so scary. And like, this is going to sound, I don't mean to be ageist, but there's something really scary about older men fighting because injuries are more hazardous, you know? And it's, it's such a knockdown drag out. Yeah. They were they were friends and it's one thing like when McPherson was in the bronzer and was having sort of angry banter. Yeah. But to physically lay hands on someone and actively do them harm, not with an artifact, but like with your hands is really upsetting and scary. It speaks to a deep level of malice. Yes, and this is the, like, the blowout we've been waiting for. Um, And there's something that I might not put in here, maybe I will, but that I've been meaning to talk about, and it's from Queer Theory, from, it's called, a book called Between Men by Eve Sedgwick, and it introduces this kind of foundational idea in queer theory that when two men vie for the same woman their their bond draws the two of them closer together than to the woman. And you can read that in a queer way, but you can also read it in terms of deeply emotional, interpersonal dynamics where these two guys are, like, connected on this deep level of friendship and strife and struggle and pain and partnership and then they physically fight, and it's just, like, the most, like, primal, because usually they have all of these fancy things, you know, Tesla's gadgets, and now they're just fighting hand-to-hand. And, again, like Jillian said, not not to make any judgments, but McPherson's a little taller, he looks a little stronger, he gets the upper hand, he bests Artie, and at this time, Pete and Micah have come rushing, and they're at the door, Pete breaks open this panel with a fire extinguisher in order to see in where Artie is on the ground. He's not unconscious, but he's really been clearly hit on the head. And they just keep shouting, Artie, get up, Artie, get up, because they know they're not going to get in in time. And so bad. I know, Artie does struggle and rally and get up, but not before... McPherson is run out of the warehouse and Artie runs into something that we have heard called the umbilicus before. It's like this... Such a good word. I know. And it's like this connecting point to the outside of the warehouse um, that provides an easier passage than a set of stairs, essentially. Like a tunnel to get into the warehouse, basically. Um, And Artie runs towards the exit... But we see McPherson lock it from the outside, 
terrible. He, like, lifts a little panel that we didn't know was there, but, like, of course someone who's been there forever would know it's there. Um, and Artie sort of realizes what's happening, but it's too late, and he's running back towards the other end of, like, the direction he came from. But just then he hears that a self-destruction, sorry, just then he hears that a self-destruct sequence initiates, and he does something that is so heartbreaking. He stands still and closes his eyes. He's like, I know that I'm not going to survive this, so I'm just going to go out peacefully. It's the worst. That's exactly what I read, is is that you see that moment and his actions where it's like, my reading is that he always kind of knew he would die in the warehouse, like, or doing something for the warehouse, and he has accepted that, that his life might end in his job, and that, like you said, he's he's not gonna, like, rush and scratch at the door, he's not gonna cry, he's just gonna stand there and, like, have his peace, um... It's so sad. And then there's a big explosion. You just see fire rushing through the umbilicus towards Artie. And in case there was any doubt, like you're thinking, oh, maybe, you know, maybe he closed his eyes and teleported. It's like, no, the fire comes and it hits Artie. And McPherson smiles and walks away. McPherson smiles Puts on his sunglasses like the opening of CSI. I heard that too. Oh my gosh. And just walks out. Like We do learn later it, there's a reason for that smile. But as of right now, we just feel hatred. Just this deep hatred for this person who has betrayed, you know, our dad. He's our TV dad at this point. And the office, like... Pete and Micah have managed to get into the office, but there's no way that they could have gotten into the umbilicus, and things are overturned, huge pieces of furniture are laying flat on the ground, and they're sort of looking around, and then they walk to where the umbilicus should be, and we realize it's this massive hole and a steep drop, and it's completely burned out, and we, we know there is no way Artie survived this. Not a single way. Yeah, so we get this kind of pan out on what I could only describe as utter destruction. Just ashes and remnants of a giant gap where something used to be. And there's this brilliant, um, I don't know if there's a word for it, but it's boom, 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 boom. It's a sound effect with a jump in the camera work as you get a further zoom out and hard cut to black. Yeah. That's it. That's the that's the finale. Yeah. It's over. It's... Hope you liked it. Yep. So before we close out and give you a little more info about season two, I just wanted to insert this quick plug for our amazing expert of the day. That's Dr. Carsonia or K K A Y E wise whitehead she is a world-class scholar and educator who we just loved learning from and there's lots of other awesome resources you can go to to continue learning from her expertise so um people are free to join me on my facebook live link 
I do a daily show Monday through Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. called Today with Dr. K. It's on 88.9 FM, WGAA. It's in the Baltimore area, but it stretches as far up as, say, Philly and as far down as, say, Virginia. But we do live streaming. I'm also an op-ed columnist for the Afro, and I write a bi-monthly column called Dispatches from Baltimore. My latest column is called Dear Racist White People, Your Time is Up. And so people can find me on Twitter at K-Y-Head, that's K-A-Y-E, Whitehead. They can find me on my Facebook Live page, which is Today with Dr. K. Uh, and they can reach out to me there because I like to communicate with people and I like to have conversations with, with what is going on with the world and how we can join together to make this world a better place, not just for our children, but for all children coming after that's the end of season one, and we're going on a hiatus for a little bit because we've got to prepare for season two. So yes. enjoy that cliffhanger. If you have watched this when it first came out, please enjoy reliving the feeling of waiting for the next season to come out. Although I will say, when I rewatched this for our podcast, I immediately like fumbled through my DVDs to put in season two because even though I've seen it multiple times, I couldn't deal. So you are welcome to binge as you prepare. We don't have a set date for season two, but I would say give us at least a month. Follow us on Twitter so that you know how we're doing. And just be aware that things like the artifact interviews um, take a really long time to book and record and etc. So we need that time to make it all come together for you. But we will still have content for you, especially on Patreon, to help fill the gap. Yes, we have at least one mailbag episode. We have the Warehouse 13 Changed My Life episode. We got stuff, so you can still get your Warehouse 13 content but it'll just be a little bit before we're back in the episodes. Yep, but we're around. So with that, I would like to say, thanks so much for listening to us this whole season. See you next time, agents. Goodbye.